the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God's word from John 1, 1 to 18. The familiar Christmas carol, Away in a Manger, has the following verses. It says, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus no crying he makes. I love you, Lord Jesus, look down from the sky and stay by my side until morning is nigh. Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask you to stay. Close by me forever, and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in your tender care. Prepare us for heaven to live with you there. This is a well-known carol, actually uh, one that I've enjoyed, and, and actually uh, is a good carol in many ways. But I think we need to recognize singing this carol and looking at John chapter 1, there are some stark differences. I think if you had never heard anything about Christianity, and your first encounter with Christianity was away in the manger, there'd be a lot of things that you wouldn't get. You might think that, you know, this, that Christmas itself is about good little babies who don't cry, who make us feel warm and secure in the darkness of winter. It kind of paints this quaint scene. There's Jesus sleeping on the hay, cattle seemingly singing some sort of lullaby, and bright stars shining above. And then this baby that doesn't cry, that would be great to have a baby that doesn't cry. Um, I don't think the Lord uh, never cried. Uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with, with the carol, but by itself, if this is our impression of Christmas, it's, it's seriously wanting. Because this baby can't do a whole lot. Maybe makes us feel better. Uh, gives us feelings of nostalgia for Christmas, but can such a Christmas child save us? 
Can such a Christmas child save us from the horrific evils of our world that we know are all around us? Things, terrible things like genocide, starvation, murder, oppression, all these things in our world. Can such a child, such a quaint scene with such an adorable baby, save us from those things? Can such a child rescue us from the forces of hell? The evil one who's bent on the destruction of those made in the image of God and the defamation of God, the, the evil one that's ever active and ever around us, can such a child save us from him? Can such a child rescue us from the tumult and inner darkness that's often in our own hearts and our own minds? Can such a child rescue us? Can such a child really do much more than maybe make us feel a little more emotionally warmer or nostalgic during Christmas? If that was all we had was that carol, we would have to say no. But we know more of the story. We read about it in John chapter 1. Although such a baby in a way in a manger is not capable of doing much, we encounter a very different baby in the scriptures, a very different baby in the Christmas story in John 1. John 1 teaches us that this is no mere baby in the manger. This is no cute bundle of nostalgia laying in the manger, but God, fully God, in all of his glory, in all of his infinite attributes, this is God in the manger as a baby, fully God and fully able to rescue us from all of these things fully able to grant us eternal life. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. The fact that this baby is fully God and he's fully able. And we'll be right in John chapter 1 looking at this. So first, Jesus is fully God. And by the way, Paul, just give me the heads up if my headset works. Is it Okay, I'll stick, stick by this. It's just hard to kind of, I'm used to moving around and I can't really move much with this right here. Um, well, this scripture in John chapter 1 is a really important one. Uh, in terms of understanding the divinity of Christ. In particular, verse 1 makes things very clear about his divinity. Oh, sure. Oh, I can move. That's right. I mean, it comes untouched, huh? Now, now I feel like a talk show host or something. Um, in verse 1 in particular, it's very important in this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It speaks about what we addressed last week, that in the beginning, he was with God. He is God. He's in the beginning with God. There's this, this fellowship in the Trinity that's existed before the foundation of the world. But the last part of that verse, it says, in the Word was God. That phrase right there is perhaps one of the most important phrases in the entire Bible because it makes it very clear that he is God. Usually I wouldn't do this uh, on a Sunday, but I'm actually going to talk a little bit about the original language. I, I, I don't usually do that because our translations in English are so great. They're so well done, and, and God in his sovereignty is in charge of even those things. We have a wonderful Bible translations in English. You don't need to know Greek to, to know God and his word. But sometimes it's helpful. So I wanted to look at this verse uh, and what it says. It's very precisely worded in the original language. hear me. 
Is it working now? Yay! All right. I'm free. Um, so in the original language, actually, we have it projected here. That, that's what it says at the top. Uh, what it, how you say that is, kai theos hein halagos, okay? That doesn't necessarily mean much, but, but word for word translation, kai means and, theos means, any guesses? God, right? Hain uh, is was, and ha logos, the word, all right? So the word, ha is law, the, and logos is word. So that's very precisely worded in Greek, and so let me explain that. Actually, first, uh, in, the, in translation into English, we lose some things uh, at times. In English, word order is really important. We determine how things function in a sentence by their order. So if it's the subject or the object or the verb, it you know, kind of depends where it is. So we, we're used to sentences starting with the subject, right? I went ice skating, right? I is the subject, went is the verb, and uh, ice skating actually is a participle, but, or I went to the house, and the house is the object. Uh, Greek has those same things, but word order doesn't matter that much. So in English, it's really important to watch our word order, because if, if not, we can say some things we don't mean to say. For example, if I said, throw the hat down the stairs to mom, um, you would understand that there's some mom's hat needs to be given to mom so you can chuck it down the stairs to mom. But if I mix up that word order in English, we get into some trouble, don't we? Throw mom down the stairs, the hat. That doesn't work, right? Uh, mom's going to get in trouble if we use that word order. But in Greek, you don't, uh, you don't have to follow word order because every word has a particular form that tells us how it functions in the sentence, whether it's a subject or object or, or verb and what type of verb it is. So that's a little different. Some, some of us, I don't know if you speak other anyone here speaks other languages, um, but some languages, it doesn't matter. Okay? The, the German is more like that, for example. Uh, so what you can do with that in Greek is you can mix things totally up in the word order, and they'll still, you'll still know exactly what is being said. So in Greek, you know, they could say, the hat throw the stairs down to mom, and that is nonsense to us, but to them they would understand exactly what you mean, because each word has a special ending. What that allows you to do in the original language, in Greek, is to change the word order to bring emphasis. Please keep that up, actually. Change the word order to, to uh, bring certain emphases. And so this sentence, the subject of the sentence is logos. That's the word. All right? So that usually comes first, but where is it in this sentence? It's at the end, right? So what is first? God. And in, in this sentence, because it says is, the word was God, that's, that's sorry for all the grammar, but that's a, a predicate sentence. And so God is a predicate nominative. So it's the, what would normally be the object of the sentence. It's like if I say I am Paul, right? I is the subject and Paul is called the predicate nominative because it's kind of like a, a little different than the object, but it's like the subject. So that's what's going on in this sentence. The, and so it's saying the halagos, the word, is God, theos, is, is, that, is the predicate nominative. But it's a put at the front of the sentence. And remember, they can put it wherever they want. Why would you put it at the front of the sentence? To make a point, right? To emphasize. So maybe a way to translate this, if we were to do it, uh, kind of maybe trying to stick to what the original language was saying, we would say, and God was the word. Or the word was God with an exclamation point. 
Okay? So that's what this construction is saying. It's, it's, it's making it very clear that the Word was God. It's who He is. It's really interesting that it is so precise that it's emphasizing and making it very clear that, that the Word was God and, and, and saying it's not saying other things. There's a lot of other things you can say and make mistakes here. And it's designed really by God using the original language to make it very clear that, that He is God. Now, notice that uh, it says halagos, the, the Word. But there's no ha or anything like that in front of theos. You see that? There's no, that's called uh, an article, a definite article, the. There's no the there. And partly because when you have predicate nominative sentences in Greek, they don't put the article there. But it's also, it's also saying something about the word being God. Because it could, if it said ha theos, hein ha logos, it would be uh, the word is the God. And that's different, isn't it? If it, says, if it said in John 1, and the Word was the God, then we would, we would think, okay, so the, they're the one and the same. So the Word is the entirety of God. All right? And we would see that this, the Son of God is all of God. And that would be an error. And there's actually, uh, there are churches that believe in that sort of idea that, that the Godhead is not three in one, but three sequentially. First there was the Father, and then He became the Son. The Father's gone. Now he's the son, and then he becomes the spirit. That's called modalism. That's what the United Pentecostal Church actually believes. So there are actually important Christian uh, people who would believe that, that you, you would know if I named them. I won't. Um, but they believe in what's called modalism, that there's not three in one, there's three sequential. That's not what this says, though. It doesn't say ha, theos. It says theos. On the other side of this, there's the era of Arianism, where they say, well, because it doesn't say the God, then we should use an indefinite article, a. Because that that's, seems to make sense. That's what you do at other places in the original language. When it doesn't, so Greek doesn't have an indefinite article, a. So you'll put it in there in a lot of places in Greek. So do that here. And so they say, that it's, this sentence says, the word was a God. Has anyone read that in the New World Translation? Yeah, that's what it says. The Jehovah Witnesses are Arian. They don't believe that Jesus is God. And their translation says in John 1, and the word was a God. That's, that's what they, they say there. That's, that's the denial that he's God himself, that he's a God, that he's a divine being is what they say. They say actually he's a mighty angel. Michael, I think, is the, the story. He's Michael the archangel taken on flesh. So they deny the divinity of, of Christ. Now, just to talk a little bit about that, first off, if, uh, does anyone here have a Jehovah Witness relative or friend? I do. And I just encourage you to love them, be a good friend, be a good relative, and look for chances to talk about Jesus and talk about the Word. And when you have an opportunity, maybe you can talk about some of these things that I'm going to talk about. Um, if you go to the next slide, Ian, and sorry that this is a little technical, but I, I want you to get this because I want you to be grounded in this important doctrine because it has huge implications. So the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, their New World Translation actually, understands that the predicate nominative uh, doesn't take on a definite article, the. And everywhere else in John chapter 1 where it has that form, they actually don't put an ah in there. 
So if you went down, these are just verses out of John chapter 1. Uh, I don't know if I have the verse references. Uh, verses 2, 4, 6, and 18. So you can look there yourself. It's the same form in each place where there's no definite article. And, and they translate it. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 2. If they follow their rule of John 1, it should say he was in the beginning with a God. If they're going to be consistent. But they don't translate it that way. Verse 4 says, in him was life. Again, it's the same sort of form in the Greek. And it, they translate it that way. If they were to be consistent, it would say, in him was a life. It doesn't make sense. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God. Uh, if they were consistent, they would say, there was a man sent from a God. And then verse 18, no, uh, no one has ever seen God. They would trans if they were consistent, it would say, no one has ever seen a God. But they don't because they understand that that's not what you do. The only time that they put the A in there is when they wanted to disprove that Jesus is God. And it seems pretty clear to me that there's an agenda behind that. It's inconsistent with what you do with Greek. It's inconsistent with the whole thrust of John as well. So I want you to hear that. I want you to hear that this, that this sentence, this, uh, this phrase in John chapter 1 is God really orchestrating through the use of Greek language something so precise that you can make no mistake about it. That Jesus is God. He's part of the Godhead. He's not the God. He's God though. He's co-equal God the Son with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's what this verse teaches. That's consistent with Scripture. That has huge impact for understanding who Christ is and what His life and death mean and who we are in Him. If He's not God, he, He's not sufficient to save. He's more like the cute baby in the manger. If he's not God, he's, he's not sufficient to keep you. If he's not God, he's not sufficient to complete the plan. If he's not God, he's not able to show the full glory of God. But he is God. He's fully God. From his fullness we have all received. Grace upon grace. His fullness. He is God. And, and this verse, uh, verse 1, is so important. Uh, but it stands alongside many other verses in Scripture as well. John chapter 1, I mean John itself, the whole gospel is chock full of statements by Jesus, making it very clear he's God. Uh, a number of times he uses the phrase, I am. And that's how it's translated in English. Now to the original listeners, when they heard that, they would have known what he's talking about. Because I am is the name of God as revealed to Moses and his people in the Old Testament. The word Yahweh uh, is close to how you say it in Hebrew. It used to be said Jehovah, by the way. And that was said because originally uh, the, the, the scribes who translated, who wrote down the Old Testament, considered the name too holy to write. So they would leave it out and they would put Lord, Elohim, over it. And if you take the vowels of Elohim and put them into the, the consonants that were there in Yahweh, you, and then you say it with a, an English you know, an English uh, accent. It comes out Jehovah. Um, but that, that's, not, that's not how to say it. It's Yahweh. And Lord is also, how, it was usually Elohim, Lord. That's why in the New Testament, if you look at verses Old Testament to New Testament, you'll see that Lord is often used for Yahweh. That's consistent with the Bible itself. So, just another thing. I, I'm not sure why I'm on Jehovah Witness thing this morning. But they say you have to call him Jehovah. Don't call him Lord, that's somehow blasphemy. No, the Bible himself, the Bible itself calls him Lord where it says Yahweh in the Old Testament. It says Lord in the New Testament. So there's nothing there uh, that's wrong in calling him Lord. But anyhow, the whole point 
is that in John, when he says, I am, that's the exact wording for God's name that he's speaking. And they recognize that. So he says a number of times throughout John, I am. And he's pointing to the fact that he's God. So John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door of the sheep. John 10 as well, I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In verse, John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. These are clear statements by Jesus that he is God. And most provocatively, perhaps, in John 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, Abraham being the father of the faith, the father of the Jewish people as well, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Clear statements that he is God. The people who heard this knew this. So in John 10, he says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood clearly what Jesus was saying. John chapter 20, at the end of this gospel, Doubting Thomas comes to Jesus. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's alive forevermore. He appears to his disciples. Thomas had missed the first opportunity. He said, you know, I don't believe it. And he, uh, Thomas comes and he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side where his wounds were. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas understood who he was. Jesus received that worship. John Piper, in commenting on what the Gospel of John is doing in all these things, he says, John, the author of the Gospel, means for us to read every word of this Gospel with the clear, solid, amazed knowledge that Jesus Christ was with God and was God, and that the one who laid down his life for us created the universe. John wants you to know and believe in a magnificent Savior. Whatever else you may enjoy about Jesus, John wants you to know and treasure, treasure Jesus in his infinite majesty. The baby in the manger is not someone to make you feel nostalgic or warm-hearted. He is no mere human. He is no mere baby. The baby in the manger is fully God. And the Scripture leaves no room for an alternative. I think of the story um, in the stories of Robin Hood. I don't know if anyone here is a Robin Hood fan. Um, I was just looking at a clip the other day. Uh, as far as movies, Errol Flynn's version is my favorite. Uh, but in the storyline, uh, if you know the story of Robin Hood, he's robbing from the rich, giving to the poor, under the, the reign of the usurper Prince John, who's trying to displace his older brother, King Richard, who has gone off to fight in the cru Crusades. So Robin is standing for justice uh, and trying to make sure that the poor are not too oppressed by robbing from the rich, giving to the poor, and waiting it out until King Richard returns. He's loyal, and all his men, uh, his Merry men, as they're called, the band of brothers that are with him, are all loyal to King Richard. They're longing for King Richard's return. In the storyline, Richard does return. But he comes back in disguise because he wants to be able to go around the 
kingdom and kind of see how everyone's doing. So he, he and his men who are with him disguise themselves as monks. And, and Richard is uh, as the chief of the monks, the abbot. And they're kind of riding through Sherwood Forest and, and Robin and his men, of course, come out and they see a wealthy abbot. Uh, and so they rob him. And in the inter- interchange there, uh, they end up befriending Robin and, and, and King Richard, though Robin doesn't know it's he. And, and, uh, and they invite, Robin invites the abbot and his monks to a feast. And they're having a feast together. And during the feast, as they're together, King Richard takes off his disguise. And he reveals who he is. He reveals his mail and his royal crest uh, to Robin. And they're all shocked and amazed. This is, this is King Richard. They're all surprised. And the, the next thing they do is they all bow down to the king. They pledge their loyalty to the king. Uh, their heartfelt loyalty to their great king, who was disguised but now is in their midst. Why do I use this story? Well, it's a lot like the Christmas story. Because we see a baby in a manger, we see a, a person, and, and, and even with the, the culture that's around that, we can see just a simple baby and really what was a simple man. But within the, the human flesh, disguised to our eyes is the infinite, eternal Almighty God, our God, the God who, who's made all things, the, the eternal one, the, the Son, uh, the, the second person of the Trinity, come to dwell with us. And so our response at Christmas should not be mere nostalgia. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's wrong to feel those things, but there, there's something much more to feel. There's something much more to think about Christmas. This is God in our midst. This is God, the fullness of God, as a baby in our midst. Come to us to dwell with us. And like Robin and his men, we should bow our knees and be in awe and worship God in our midst. So let me ask you, is this the Jesus you worship this Christmas? Or is there something else that you worship at Christmas? Is this the Jesus that you worship fully, God, come to us? I would submit that for probably all of us, our, our worship of Christmas, our sense, our, our feelings, our, our mindset at Christmas needs to be adjusted by this truth, by what John 1.1 says. Many of our expectations for Christmas are, are preliminarily, primarily perhaps aligned along nostalgia and memories, and and just loving Christmas lights, and getting together with people. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But what can happen is those things are out of place in our celebration of Christmas. They become the prime thing. They become what we look forward to the most. They become what captures our attention more than anything else. And John 1.1 calls us to something much greater and glorious than that. To focus on God in our midst. Christmas is not about primarily these other things. They have their place. Not about lights and even friends and family and gifts. Christmas is about God. It's ultimately about Him. God coming to us in His glory. It's about God. God should be the center of our focus, should be the center of our worship, the center of our enjoyment at Christmas. Because He comes for us. And He comes in all His glory. He comes and He humbles Himself. Next week we'll talk about that. The the glory that He takes on flesh. 
He doesn't grasp his prerogatives as God, but humbles himself as a servant and comes to us. That's what Christmas is about. So, so we need to adjust our expectations. And that, I think, addresses us in a couple categories. For many of us, Christmas time is depressing. Because you, perhaps we have these expectations of, of nostalgia and, or family and harmony with family and nice lights and doing all these things, whatever. Maybe there's wonderful memories you tap into. And that ends up becoming the, the focal point of, of Christmas for you. And you can't help but be disappointed if that's the case. Those things are passing. They're passing. They're fleeting. And John 1, 1 calls us to not center on those things, but to center on God in our midst. The worship of God. The enjoyment of God. The wonder of God taking on flesh. And so that, that truth, getting our thoughts outside of ourselves and how we feel about Christmas onto God Himself, rescues us from things like depression. depression Christmas depression. Maybe you aren't a depressed person. You just love Christmas. I don't want to steal your joy because you just love the event. But there's something much better than just all the things that come with it. Something much more glorious. We are called to come and worship Jesus, fully God. And He's also fully able. That's what our passage teaches us in verses 3 to 5. It says, And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, as God, is the agent of creation. All things are made through Him. There isn't anything in all creation that doesn't exist through the work of God the Son. He made all things. Hebrews 1-2 says, But in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is not like the, the, the second person of the Trinity, like sitting there on the sideline waiting for, to be called into the game, like his dad, the father's the coach, you know. And he's running the game and his son's on the, on the bench. Okay, son, now's your chance to go in here and do something, you know. Uh, that's not what's going on. Jesus has been involved with the Father and with the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. Creation itself comes through the agency of Christ. He was not idle in creation. He participated in creation with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. All three work together in creation. God created the heavens and the earth. When it says God created the heavens and the earth, it means God, the, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not a lesser, less involved member of the Trinity in creation, but fully involved. They have different roles in, in, in their personhood. The Father is the, the designer, the overseer. The Son is the, the, the executor, the one who does it. The, the, he accomplishes it. And, it, and, and the, the Son is the Word, the living Word. So it's through the divine Word, the, the transforming Word, the authoritative Word that, that creation is commanded and shaped in all its glory. And the Spirit is the power in accomplishing these things. They work together. So Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. I think that fits in with the Trinitarian understanding of creation. So Jesus in His role creates. Creates this glorious place with all of its glory. The whole, the whole expanse of creation. Creation is glorious. This baby in the manger is also the creator of all things. Everything. From snowflakes to 
stars and galaxies, the whole breadth of things. And, and, and each of these things in creation itself is glorious. Do you know that every snowflake uh, is built around the same six-sided structure, a hexagonal structure? They're all based on hexagons. But they're pieced together in such a way that there are no two snowflakes alike. A snowflake contains 10 billion, billion water molecules, each of them constructed in a crystalline fashion. So they're all different, and they're all glorious. And every time it snows, guys, there are billions and billions of these glorious creations falling to the earth. That's, that's magnificent. That's the Creator. That's who He is. That's what He's like. And sorry if you don't like snow, but snow is glorious. This is our Creator. This is our God. And, and that's just one, one little thing. Just snow. I mean, we could go on and on. The, the other end of the, the scale, the, the galaxies are made by Him. Stars are made by Him. 91 billion light years is the estimated size of the universe. 91 billion. I mean, I, I can't even understand how big a light year is. Right? Because the sun is 93 million miles away, and it takes 8 seconds for light to get here. 93 million miles in 8 seconds. So how far do you go in a year? Long way. 91 billion light years is the estimated size of the whole universe. Full of stars and galaxies beyond number. Full of these glorious, powerful systems, these stars. Our own sun is incredibly powerful. Though it's 93 million miles away, we, the earth, receive 3,000 atom bombs worth of energy every second from it. We're 93 million miles away, 3,000 atom bombs worth of energy every second hit the earth from the sun. And God created a universe full of these. In our own galaxy, there are 100 billion stars just in our galaxy. 100 billion of these incredibly powerful, glorious things. And there are estimated um, 100 trillion galaxies in the whole universe. That's the Creator. That's the baby in the manger. Glorious and worthy. He's the one we're called to worship this Christmas. But John chapter 1 teaches us that he's not only fully able because he made creation, but he's fully able because he has recreated. He has brought a new creation. He's brought a new creation to us. And so later in the parallel section in verses 16 and 17, it speaks of him. And this is to parallel the verses earlier 4 and 5, talking about creation. It's speaking of the new creation. It says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He has, from his fullness, from all this glory of being fully God, God in the flesh, he's brought to us grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. He has come with, with a grace that's even better than the grace we knew before. The grace we knew before the, the people of God would have known was under the law of Moses. It's a gracious covenant that God made with His people. We've been speaking about that in our series. The law comes. The law comes. The truth of God comes. It comes with the covenant of Abraham. covenant of grace comes with call to obedience. But there's a fuller... Um, dispensation, a fuller revelation of this grace in Christ. This is a fulfillment of the grace that was in the law of Moses in Christ. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He brings us grace upon grace. 
A grace that exceeds the previous grace. And the rest of the Gospel of John explains how this happens. Christ comes in His glory as a baby, grows up, lives His perfect life, loves others, loves His Father, demonstrates that He's God and what He does, His signs, His healing, uh, his, His words demonstrate this. And then He goes to the cross. Totally unexpected, but, but part of how He glorifies His Father. Going to the cross to bear our sins. To bear the sins of, of His beloved people. Of His sheep. This plan that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had before time, Christ is faithful to accomplish the plan, to do the work, to gladly humble Himself to serve His Father, to gladly humble Himself to serve you and me. The One who, who made galaxies and stars and snowflakes. This glorious, eternal, worthy One gives Himself for you and for me on the cross to purchase you, to, to make it so you could be forgiven through simple faith, simply just believing what He said is true. He is God. My Lord and my God, like Thomas said. I believe You are God in the flesh. I believe You've paid for my sins. I turn from all those other things to You alone. That simple faith is, is all that we do in that. He has done it all in the cross. He paid for our sins and so He was able to say on the cross, it stands finished. God Himself said on that cross, when He paid for your sins, He paid them completely. He said, it stands finished. It's done. Like we reflected on communion, all our sins. All types of sins. No matter what they might be. No matter how hard it might be for you to think could be forgiven. They are forgiven because God, the Son, died on that cross, the God-man, and said, it is finished. He brings us creation. He brings us new creation. Then He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death, and now reigning and carrying out the completion of His plan. He is fully able to rescue us. This is the glory of Christmas. This is the glory of who Christ is as God. Fully able. And if the band could come up as we close. The question I have for you is do you believe this? Do you trust Him? Are you worshiping this God in the flesh this Christmas? who as fully God, Creator and Recreator, is fully able to rescue you and give you eternal life. Now that may seem like a question like, well, duh, yeah, that's the one. But, but I think we can better know our own hearts by looking at our lives a little bit and getting at what we really believe. If you look at your life, what, what do you do Maybe during this Christmas season, what are you doing to feel good about yourself? What are the things that make you feel good? Now again, this is not to say that they don't have their right place, but what are, what, their rightful place somewhere, but what are those things? What are you looking to, to feel good about yourself? Are you looking to your religious performance? How, how well you feel like you've obeyed God? How consistently you've prayed? How much of your Bible you've read? How, how hard you believe these things? Is that where you look? John 1.1 calls you to look somewhere else. 
look beyond this because those efforts will never, never suffice. They're good things. Pursue them. They don't suffice. They don't compare compare to the glory of God. Who God is and what He's done for you. So take your eyes off of your efforts and put them on Christ, God in the flesh. Maybe you feel good by attaching yourself to certain things. Certain things that may have their place. Maybe there are things that are, that are automatically destructive. There's the whole gamut of things. God made all things and they are good in their original creation and their original use. But, but maybe you're looking to those things to make yourself feel good. Maybe it's people. Something that's the created thing, the created realm and not the creator. So whether that's alcohol, drugs, or things that are maybe more benign than that, sports, compatriots, maybe good friends. Are you looking there? Where do you spend your time? What do you get excited about most during the week? Those things and those people? That's probably where you're putting your hope. That's what's making you feel good about yourself. John 1.1 1, 1, and this story call you to look to something much better, much more glorious, Look to the one who, when you look to him and trust in him, he'll put all those other things in order. He'll put them in their proper place. Yes, there's a place to enjoy the things he's made. But for his sake, this glorious one revealed on Christmas calls you to come and worship, to come and trust, and to delight in him most of all. Maybe you don't feel good at all. You just feel terrible. This Christmas story is for you as well. Because ultimately, it's not about how you feel. About something way better than that. Imagine if that was all it was about, how you felt. That's just a downward spiral. It's about something much better. The gift of Christmas is it calls us to take our eyes off of ourselves and how we feel and put them on God, the glorious Son, and His amazing life, and His death, and His reign, and, and all the glory of the Trinity revealed to us, and He invites us in to know Him and to perceive his glory and to live in this glory to the glory in him not ourselves that's the wonder of christmas that's the best gift you could get get your eyes off yourself and find something much more satisfying and eternal jesus is fully god and fully able to give us true abundant everlasting life let's pray